0: Thanks, Roger. I think. (laughs) My name is Gary, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm very glad to be here tonight. I'm delighted to be here. I, I, Roger said something right there that he hoped that I I still felt like it was a privilege to speak at an AA meeting. And uh, as it happened, Clara reminded me of that just a couple days ago on the phone. We were uh, talking about your Saturday night speaker. We were talking on the phone. She reminded me of that, too. I hate these people that work so hard to keep me humble. They really... (laughs) That ticks me off. But I am very glad to be here, and and, uh, I I really do appreciate it. I, uh... But you guys are in for an exciting weekend. I was reading the program. Looks to me like you got stuff planned where you can get this outfit straightened
1: out.
0: Because I had to wish you a lot of luck. (laughs) That'll go real well. Clara also says when she's at a meeting, sickies up front. I can attest about six of these clowns. They're they're uh, they got the right row. It's good to see them. I uh, just just real briefly. I, I was I was uh, comparing your state convention to the one Julie and I got involved. Julie's my wife, incidentally. I referred to her. Uh, I've been married to this lady for 35 years, and she's still my first wife. And uh, uh, I, frankly, I wasn't bragging. It amazes the hell out of me.
1: It, uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, we've given it a run here and there, where you'd never know. And uh, the lawyers were contacted, and, and the guns were drawn, but uh, <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, Julie and I initially got involved with the Colorado State Convention many years ago. And uh, uh, it was always exciting to put one of these things together and we did a lot of the same things that you got planned on your program this weekend. And what I always liked about the state conventions is they got, it gave people from within the state the opportunity to get out and share what they had in the program. You didn't have to bring in the big shot out of town speakers to have a good time. And and yeah, I'm from out of town and I'm the expert tonight. But but. <laughs> But I really I really think that's important, and i and I really like to see that. I'm glad to see you're doing it. And again, I really do wish you luck. It's uh, a lot of fun. I found AA in a nut house. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's more than just us here. They're just going <laughs> to... I was on an all-night bus ride to this particular nut house, and, and I jumped off the bus to get a a pint I might not have made it without it and, and I got back on the bus and this fella sat down next to me and he wanted to talk at two in the morning this monkey wants to talk and uh, he says where are you going <laughs> and I said oh I'm going to Evanston and he says oh you're going to the insane asylum
1: <laughs>
0: I was but I didn't tell that son of a bitch that. I didn't <laughs> uh, at any rate, I really did find AA there. I had arrived there uh, a month before my 25th birthday, and uh, I was pretty sick fellow. I was dying. I didn't know that, but I was dying. I was uh, six foot two inches tall and weighed something less than 130 pounds, and uh, I didn't feel good. That's, that's skinny.
1: <laughs>
0: you walk fast, your legs whistle. I mean, it's skinny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and
0: I... Uh, uh, I just didn't feel good I didn't know I was dying I'd become everything I despised and I think that's important to share with you because it, it, in my mind there wasn't a thing about me worth blowing to hell I, uh, I had become a wife beater and a child abuser long before it was fashionable uh, I, I couldn't seem to tell the truth even when I knew I should and wanted to you ever thought about the alcoholic in our lives I know Matt and I have I'd lay a lie on you just to lie to you. You know, I I wanted to be a part of your group so bad that I'd tell you whatever it took to get there. I thought often that maybe I was trying to just get a lot of practice in and I may really need it someday. But I couldn't tell the truth. And, And I couldn't hold a job. I had long sense quit trying to keep the checkbook straight. That didn't mean I wasn't writing checks. <laughs> that was, that was uh, <laughs> uh, Back in Wyoming, back then, they had a thing called counter checks. You'd go into the bar and, of course, you needed something to drink on, you'd say, give me a check. And uh, they'd say, which bank? And I'd tell them one, but it didn't matter. I didn't have an account in any of them. But, uh, so chasing bad checks was a part of my, my life, too. And that's part of the fear, if you think about it. See, you'd write all these bad checks during the week, and if you were fortunate enough to work that week, you got a paycheck. So then you went around to the bars and bought back your bad checks. And then you had to write another bad check because you spent all your money buying back the old checks. It's no wonder we're terrified. You know, that,
1: that gets scary.
0: I found myself in this nut house, uh, uh after a long bus ride and a short conversation with a policeman, and uh, I uh, uh, I got uh, in there and they asked me when I came right in the door if I had come in to take part in their alcoholic rehabilitation program. So I had a choice. You see, I could have been an alcoholic or a nut. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I've thought about that since. <laughs> And uh, after they took me out of the locked areas, they put me in with the alcoholics. And I looked around, and things were really pretty much what where I should have been, I thought. I was by far the youngest man in the room, and there was maybe 30, 35 alcoholics in there. And uh, they... A uh, uh, bunch of has-beens. <laughs> they really were. I mean, these were guys that were had lost the ranch and, and and had lost the business and done all these things in the past and here they were sitting there and, and I'm sitting there sizing them up and I think, my God, I'm in a root of a bunch of has bins and I never was. I hadn't had time to do anything yet. But. And I'll tell you a little more about that here in a minute. Uh, when I went into that nut house, truthfully, all I re- really remember about that trip is a conversation with Julie and her dad just before I got on the bus he helped me get on the
1: bus
0: (laughs) a few years later he told me that night he didn't much care which bus I got on as long as it was (laughs) leaving Cheyenne uh, (laughs) at that point in my life uh, the the night before I got on that bus like I said I'd become everything I despised in my mind I hated myself I had been living with the hole in my belly with the wind blowing through it for so long and everything that used to try to plug that hole to quit working and, and I, you know my first success with anything that worked for that was, was uh, the first time I got a hold of enough to drink and the first time I got a hold of enough I, uh, I was in Cheyenne I was, I was a sophomore in high school two other fellows and myself had driven from Cheyenne over to Laramie to the state basketball tournament and when we got over there we got a hold of, uh, We had a fella buy us a, a a quart of four roses and some Coke. That's Coca Cola. You got to explain that anymore. Just... And we picked up a couple of girls and we took off over the Ninth Street Hill. Now I don't know what they call the Boondocks in your town, but in Laramie it was the Ninth Street Hill. And we drove out there, and uh, <laughs> I got to thinking about this particular night a number of years later. Here we were, sophomores in high school, we had all the booze in the car, and we had the girls in the car, and we didn't know what to do with either one. (laughs) You couldn't run down to the drugstore and buy the magazines that explained all that like you can now. (laughs) And I'm one that I literally couldn't talk to strangers, and I really couldn't. I, I, I was so paralyzed with fear, I couldn't look you in the eye and talk to you. If I were speaking to you, I couldn't look in the eye, and I really couldn't if you were talking to me. I just couldn't stand it. It's like you could see the hole in my belly. You could see the fear. You'd know how terrified I really was. God, I didn't want you to know that. I really didn't. And so we're we're in this car, and we're passing that bottle around, just like I'd seen the cowboys do it. First time we ran around you. And I don't know why we did that. And I took a hit, and I passed it on. And then the second tame came around, I took it, and they had to take it away from me. And before they took it away from me, I'd gotten a hold of a lot of whiskey. And everything changed. It changed right there. That feeling I had of not belonging with that group in that car changed. And I felt like I owned that group in that car. And the girls were neat. I (laughs) I always thought they would be, but I was always afraid to talk to them and find out. (laughs) One of them had a couple of points about her just fascinated the hell out of me. (laughs) uh, I made a clumsy grab for her and she liked to beat the hell out of me. (laughs) A little while later, they're going to sober me up, so they take me to the Diamond Horseshoe truck stop and fill me full of coffee, and that didn't sober me up, it woke me up. And I took a poke at a big cowboy and he damn near did beat the hell out of me. He damn near killed me. And, uh, uh, that, you know, after that they took me somewhere and they put me to bed somewhere to get me out of there. God, I had a great time. I mean, (laughs) Jesus. That became my goal from that point on, and it worked out almost like that, too, every time. My goal in life at that point in time, if I went out at night, was to get drunk, get in a fight, and get laid. Not necessarily in that order, but the first two always precluded the third anyway, so it doesn't matter.
1: <laughs>
0: but that, that's the story of my social drinking. I mean, <laughs> it really is, because that's as good as it got. The first time I got a hold of enough to drink, it happened. <laughs> the first time I got a hold of enough to drink, I crossed that invisible line.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, invisible line. If anybody was predisposed to alcoholism, it was me. To hold my belly with the wind blowing so it had gone back at my earliest memories of school. A- and I had been terrified of that. I didn't drink long. I drank to, uh, from however old you are then, 16 I guess, till a month before my 25th birthday. I landed in that nut house on the third day of December 1964. Haven't had a drink or that mind affecting stuff since, and uh, it just worked. It worked fine. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm a minority in alcoholics Anonymous. Truly, I am. I never took any other kind of drugs. All I did was drink alcohol, and that's because alcohol works, man. It worked just fine. And, good. and I'm not trying to be smug about that, or, or, or I'm really not. Uh, most of the people that come into AA are alcoholics that also used other drugs. Might want to listen to that. I I, uh, uh, I think the disease is alcoholism. If you don't have it, you're in the wrong place, and, and that's been my experience with all the people I've worked with for a long time. At any rate, I uh, I found myself in the nut house. I'm exposed to A there the first time, and you guys weren't any prettier in the nut house than you are now. <laughs> and, uh, I was exposed to two or three different things, I guess the two things that were most important that happened to me well three I guess, I did get my physical health back. I learned to eat in there, I'd forgotten how to do that. And so I started to get some of this, some meat back on my bones, started to gain some weight. I found out about Alcoholics Anonymous, and not necessarily in this order, I really don't recall the order, but I also learned that I was an alcoholic. And, and, and I learned that I was powerless over alcohol at a depth that I've not taken a drink since. <clears throat> that did not mean I understood it. I, I, for some reason, when they told me, Gary, if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk, and I believed them. First time in my life, I heard I didn't say something like, I wonder what they really mean by that. that. But I didn't do that. You know, and, and that was a gift. No doubt about it, it was a gift. Uh, in fact, we were sitting down in the... Uh, in the canteen one time, there there was a bunch of us guys sitting around t- these tables drinking coffee and telling lies. And, uh, talking about when we're going to do when we get out. And it's going around the room, and, and uh, it seems to be my turn to talk. And I said, gee, I, I haven't a clue what I'm going to do when I get out of here. But all I know is I never, ever want to take another drink. And I'd never had that thought before. It was absolutely novel. I heard myself say that. Of course, that's when I qualified to be a member of AA. I met the requirements of the Third Tradition. Didn't know that either then. And so anyway, they kept me in there for 16 weeks. Uh, We had AA meetings there uh, uh, twice a week. They'd drive up from Salt Lake City, and they'd come in put on these meetings. these, These people would come in clean. Nice cars. I'd look out the window, and I didn't see any old Indian cars like I was driving. These cars had chrome on both sides. (laughs) No cracks in the windows If they did, they parked so you couldn't see them Uh, Some of them talked about God And I wasn't real comfortable with that. To this day, I don't know why I hadn't had any experience with God But uh, I came from a family That that God was not a subject of discussion We lived in Wyoming So droughts were common And if it got real bad Dad Dad would run over to the Mormons next door and have not prayed for rain. Sometimes it rained. But that was as good as God. I learned the Lord's Prayer in AA. But, uh, that goes on later on. I didn't know anything about it. At any rate, I uh, I learned those things in the, in the nut house. And I figured out in there that if I wanted to live, I probably had to hang around with you people for the rest of my life and uh, again that was a gift I just knew that when I left there and I don't know why (laughs) I had a sponsor once every time he saw a speaker take his watch off he'd say oh hell he's going to talk all
1: night uh,
0: I saw where you got a play going on or something like that at 945 and uh, if I'm still talking you can do the play right over there (laughs) if I'm still talking Julie will have shot me long before that uh, I left that nut house after 16 weeks. My health back. I got a free ride to college. Three days before I was supposed to leave there, they came up to me and they said, "Gary, did you know there's a program for where you could attend college, and we'll pay you enough money to maintain your wife and children, buy all your books and tuition, and you'll be able to get along fine." Now, I considered my options to that very quickly. Them. The option is, is I had to go home and find a job. Yeah.
1: This
0: guy here in the corner, he understands. Yeah. What would you have done? You would have gone to college, too. That was, uh, And so I did. We ended up in Laramie and packed up you and the kids and went to Laramie and, and uh, jumped on this free ride to college. And I'll tell you how that goes to untreated alcoholism. I'm dry. At this point in time, I start there, and I'm about six months sober. I'm as terrified every morning I wake up as I was any time during my drinking. It wasn't a morning I woke up that the hole in my belly, the wind blowing through it, was not there. I was scared to death. I was still incapable of carrying on a conversation. And I have to take freshman and sophomore level courses in in school. Like speech. (laughs) And those kind of things. Somehow I got through school. I I got through four years of college and three years because if I took any time off, I'd never go back. And I knew that. I couldn't have stood it. And I graduated with good grades. Which amazes the hell out of me, but it really amazed Dad. <laughs> Dad told me very early in my, in my uh, schooling that I was going to finish high school no matter what. He says, if I have to, we'll move into town so you would be a lot closer to school. You won't have so far to walk when you get old. <laughs> story. I, I remember him sitting there saying that, and he was dead serious.
1: <laughs>
0: what happened there during those, during those uh, three-plus years, so you got to understand, go back to my program, I had, I had one half of the first step. I was powerless over alcohol, and if I don't take the first drink, I won't get drunk. There was two meetings a week in Laramie back then, if anybody else showed up. One on Mondays and one on Fridays, and I used to study a lot down where they ate. Met. It was in a uh, in an office building over an old corner drugstore in, in a little town. You can picture it in your mind. The dust was about that thick before we brushed it off the chairs to sit down. And I'd go down there and I'd make the coffee and I'd put book, books along to study. And if nobody else showed up for the meeting, I'd be staring out the window at the Buffalo Bar across the street. You know, the light was one of those it said Buffalo, Buffalo. The bee's gone, it said, Uffalo, Uffalo, goddamn Uffalo. <laughs> and I grabbed the arm of my chair and I said, God, please don't let me take another drink. I really don't want to drink, and my knuckles turned one. And I just hated it. And somehow we got through school and we ended up in Denver. Took a job with a big oil company, so I was going to get rich. I took a job as an accountant which is real interesting here i am with a major u.s. oil company as an accountant and they want their accountants to be able to look you in the eye <laughs> no sense of humor at all And uh, that job didn't last long because i was scared to death and i took another job and i was scared to death and i started going to meetings in denver and i was going to meetings 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 for a while and i'm still scared to death and i'd have people come up to me and say something like gee gary isn't it great you got a hold of this thing so young you didn't have to go through all the stuff that we went through. Gosh, we're glad to see you here. And I would think to myself, wait a minute. I just got done damn near dying. I can't make it any longer. What what more do I got to do to be a part of this outfit with you guys? But I kept going to meetings, and I attended a meeting with a guy named Joe. And Joe had been around to eight, about as long as I had, and we, we were both there, suffering from untreated alcoholism. But Joe had something I wanted. Joe had the ability to say the most profound things when he was bitching about
1: something.
0: (laughs) In other words, he was good at bitching. And and I really admired that. When they were sitting at Joe's house, drinking coffee, bitching, his wife at the the moment came up to him. (laughs) Came up to us and she said, You know, you two are probably the two most miserable people. (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. Get away from me. Get the hell out of here. I don't even want you around me. Go downtown get drunk. I don't care. Go down. I hear there's a young people's meeting downtown on the street. Go down and give that a try. Joe got all puffed up. He says, all right, Brown, let's go downtown to that meeting. The broad's got to be better looking there anyway.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's why we went.
1: <laughs> and they were. <laughs>
0: but what happened there was interesting enough. Is nobody came up to me and, and, and said gee how great it is you got in this outfit, for, you know and I'd never really been to a meeting but they talked about the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous like that's something you really did
1: <laughs>
0: they didn't just agree with them they did it and I hadn't seen much of that shit I have not seen much of that since now that I think about it I uh, <laughs> I I uh, I'd never heard that I really hadn't. I've been to a lot of me. I had wondered why this old lady in Cheyenne used to keep explaining to me. She'd say, Gary, the reason they put numbers in front of them steps is so you'll know which one to take next. And I go to this meeting, and they're talking about taking steps, and I thought it was foolish. What the hell? There was 12 of them up there. Just reach up and grab one. You didn't
1: have
0: to, <laughs> didn't have to do all that. And uh, a little guy named Lee come up to him, and he? he says, Gary, you can go ahead and do that if you want to. He says, and as soon as you find out it don't work, you might want to come back and try it our way. He says, that's assuming, of course, that you live through that. A- and, uh, and the pain I was in at the time, I still can't believe I was so But, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, just a brief history on that. This was back in the, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Young Peoples was a, still a fairly new idea in AA, and it wasn't a great deal of them. this was one of the first, what you would call a successful Young Peoples group that you'd ever see. And uh, at four years sober, me walking in there, I had seniority on most of them, which meant I could tell them how the cow ate the cabbage, but uh, they weren't listening. We met twice a week. We had a closed meeting downtown just off of Skid Row, and then we had an open meeting at the Old York Street Club downtown on Sunday nights, and it was the most popular meeting in town. I mean, people would come to that meeting just to see who was going to come in next. It was unbelievable. It was a lot of fun. But then we started a third meeting. We had heard some Canadians talking, and, and we decided that uh, they might have the right idea. They were talking about what they did in their home group. And I guess Cecil wouldn't mind me blowing his anonymity, but he's talking about his home group. In his home group, they had a step meeting. And you couldn't talk unless you'd taken the step. You weren't allowed to theorize because they knew the difference between that and taking it and sharing your real experience. And so you couldn't get away with that, and we thought that might be fine, but hell, we didn't know what we were talking about. And so we decided to start a third meeting, and we were going to take the big book, and we were going to look at it close enough to find out what it was going to talk about, and so we did. And uh, we didn't have a place to hold it, so we started meeting in homes, and uh, there was 14 or 15 of us at that point in time, and so we, and, and we were made up of a pretty wide variety of people, I mean, uh there were some people that were living uptown in the high-rise apartments, and then there were some guys out in Goat Hill where we held our first meeting. And they call it Goat Hill because those shacks are, are uh, you know, the goats are right there feeding on the grass right next to the shacks. And that's where we held our first meetings, and we did that. And we were a wide variety of people. It, it's kind of surprising mm-hmm. to me this day. the book says that we are people that would normally not mix. And, uh, <laughs> well, you'd believe that if you saw that bunch of money. At any rate, we took our big book and started at the very beginning, right there after the first page. Just amazes the hell out of me. That's where we start, and we started reading slash sharing what the what the uh, big book said. Read slash interrupt, talk about it, and, and I remember it. it was kind of funny because every time we'd read something. See, I would tried to read the book many, many times before that. I really had by myself. And I'd sit there and I'd read that book and put it down and didn't have a clue what i just read. Didn't have the slightest idea what it was. It didn't matter whether I read a paragraph or a page. I just, I couldn't grasp it on my own. And here, I, you know, I just finished college. I wasn't completely stupid, but I couldn't get that. And so we started reading that book and read read a, you know, a page maybe, and somebody'd interrupt and share what their experience was with that or what was going on with that. And I'd say something like, the way I interpret that... And little Lee would say, Gary, we don't much care (laughs) how you interpret that. We're really interested in the black print on the white page. They said that to me a lot over the next several weeks. But uh, uh, that's what we did, and we got through the book from the beginning. And just to highlight a few things that stay with me to this day. That was a long time ago. The doctor's opinion says... Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. (laughs) That sure beats getting dropped on your head or something, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. And that's me. I like the effect produced by alcohol. Every time it worked up until it quit work. And I was dying. And then we got into the third chapter more about alcoholism. If you will, the big book, you know, it calls itself the primary text of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's exactly what it is. A good textbook will tell you what, it, what it's going to say, and it's going to tell you what it says, and it's going to tell you what it told you. And if you look at your book closely, that's precisely what it does. But anyway, we got into the third chapter more about alcoholism. That's the first step to the discussion. If There's a line on that first page of it. It says, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. <laughs> This is the first step to recovery. The delusion where anything like other people are presently maybe, has to be smashed. And that was the night I was given the keys to the kingdom. And I say that in all seriousness. I walked away from that, that meeting that night knowing full well that the first step read I was powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, because that's precisely what it meant. It didn't mean when I was drinking. It meant right now. It meant I can't manage my life and I'm powerless. And I use the two words interchangeably anymore because they are I uh, had I been able to manage my life there wouldn't have been a time in it when, I, when I'd have had to have the booth. I can remember a time in my drinking days where I told my dad I was afraid and I only did that once because he put me down pretty good I don't remember what he said but I knew I was put down like ah shit what are you afraid of and I didn't want to be afraid and I couldn't manage not being afraid I can't manage my life I can't do that but then after I was sober, I couldn't manage the fear away. We had attend functions where I was supposed to be happy, and I couldn't manage that. We buried an Uncle of Julie's because of alcoholism. And everybody was sad, and I knew I should be sad. I was sober. He'd come up to the nut house to see me when I was in there. And I couldn't manage that either. I can't manage my life. If you put me somewhere and say, I'm supposed to feel this way, ain't going to happen. It doesn't happen. And I understood absolutely completely that at certain times I'm unable to stay away from the first drink. The alcoholic at certain times just can't do that. He must have help from God. And I didn't like that option. Didn't like it at all. So if you will, my first step came down in three or four places. I'd become everything I despised. There wasn't a thing about me that worked particularly with booze. And I hadn't tried anything without booze before. Certainly not God. And I can't do a thing about alcohol. I'm absolutely unable to do that. And that's as true today as it was back then. And I just think that's great because that means the rest of the steps have to do with me getting a hold of a manager to take care of my life. And as of this moment, I think that's working. uh, We read on in the Big Book. And uh, we agnostics, you know, the second step discussion, if you will, we came to believe that a power greater ourselves could restore us to sanity. And and uh, the way that works for me is by this time, you know, hell, I've been around for about four years, and I've seen some things happen to some really sick pups. I mean, <laughs> there were some monkeys that came into that young people's group that were really screwed up, and I'd watch them. And some of them would come in and they'd get sober and they'd go right past me. You know, geez, all of a sudden they're praying. They're no longer writing bad checks intentionally. I will. They seem to be able to get along with their families. They're they're getting the the past straightened out somehow. If they're still together, they're working on that. If they're not together, they're paying their child support. One case, the guy went down to the county attorney, and he wanted to make make amends to his wife and children so bad he was willing to go to prison to do it. I guarantee you, he grew right past me in a flash. So I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I watched him doing it with other drunks. It was real clear that there wasn't a human power doing that for him. Well, the guy's name, his name's Tom, those guys came in. Tom came in when he was 24, 25 years old. Back when he was 19, he was admitted to a psychiatric center called Mount Airy. <laughs> is that a wonderful name for a psychiatric center? Mount Airy for the airhead. And their treatment for alcoholism back then was the old diversion treatment. And what the old diversion treatment, still goes on in some places today. I understand there's a hospital chain called Raleigh Hills that still does it. It's a medieval thing where they, uh, in Tom's case, they took him into this uh, hospital setting. The treatment room was a fairly small room, maybe 15 foot square. The walls are mirrored with for for the shelves with liquor on each wall, all different kinds of liquor. In the middle of the room is a barber chair with a stainless steel pot that'll swivel in front of or away from whoever's in that chair. And they'd given Tom some ad abuse. And they put him in this room. And they said, you could have anything you want to drink. I understand the idea of this. He's going to drink on top of the ad abuse. He's going to get violently ill. Is that what happened to you? His hair will fall out and his, his eyes will cross. And, and uh, his toenails will curl. And he's going to watch it all in the mirror. And the whole idea of that, he's going to be so so adverse to drinking, he'll just never take another drink.
1: <laughs>
0: five years later when Tom came to us he says I want you to know that worked he said it really did he said he hadn't had reason or excuse to take since. <laughs> but Tom grew right past me and Tom's crazy one of the craziest guys I ever met he and I used to have more fun had to be a God working his life nobody that crazy can do it any other way <laughs> God he was wonderful so I came to believe that the power firefighter myself could restore strongly sanity because I watched him do it with other people. And that happened at about four years sober. We're reading on in the big book in our group, and, and we uh, get to the fifth chapter. And after you read the, the first portion of the 12 steps and all that, it talks about, well, now we're in step three. And so we read all that preliminary part, step three, and, and read about the, the actor and everything he does to manage his life, your life, my life, everybody else. And and there's a prayer there. And little Lee says in that meeting, he says, "Uh, I got an idea. He says, I'd like for us all to join hands and read slash pray that third step prayer together. He he said, "Uh, the reason I want to do that is I've been around AA about four years. I've got a lot of meetings. And he says, I asked these old timers where they are in the steps. I asked them that a lot. And he said, "Uh, generally they'll say they're at the third step. And I'll say, gee, you've been in AA for several years. Why haven't you written an inventory? And they'll say, well, because I've not completed the third step. And he says, the reason I want to do this with you guys is if a few weeks from now you're sitting in an AA meeting and you hear me telling somebody I haven't taken the fourth step, I haven't written an inventory because I've not completed the third step, you can call me a damn liar because you saw me do it. And so that's what we did. We joined hands and red slash prayed that third step prayer together. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to me. still is, for that matter, for a number of reasons. One, back there in the late 60s, it really wasn't fashionable for a room full of boys stand around and holding hands. And in my case, it truly wasn't fashionable to have anybody see me praying. My God. But we did it. And when I went home that night, I knew I had something going for me, and I don't think I'd been sure of that before. I knew I had some momentum, if you will. And I knew this thing was going to work, and I knew it right then. I said another prayer on the way home, just in case. I said, God, please make that first prayer real. I really meant it. I wasn't just going along with the gang. And you know what? Out of those 14 guys, 13 of us are still sober. That took place in the, in the late 60s. We're probably averaging between... 26, 27 years of sobriety to, I guess, Don would be 37 now. And relatively young men, given the, the time we got in the program. And a lot of us are out doing stuff like this, down and go through that with you guys, that I am not sharing my experience with you. That means I don't have the slightest clue what the AA message is. And if I'm trying to teach you something I'm not doing, you're not going to get it either so I really think that's necessary so my life truly has been as many years since is going through the steps with people like this repeatedly in my case for years and with some of those guys repeatedly Uh, we got to the inventory part (coughs) there was a guy in this group a big good looking Mexican named Ernie and Ernie and I didn't like each other we didn't like each other at all And we never knew why. I mean, we met in an AA meeting. We hadn't seen each other at a bar or an alley or anything like that. And we just flat don't like each other. And and he's coming into AA. You go to AA back then again, late '60s, early '70s. You know, all the hippies and the free love and the flower children. And you couldn't go into an AA meeting and say, "I really don't like that yo-yo over there." You you had to love everybody. So you'd go into the meeting and you'd shake hands and you'd hug, and Ernie'd be sitting over there. And so I didn't really need to go to that scene, So I'd just give him the peace sign, and Ernie would give me the peace sign. And Ernie's missing this finger,
1: <laughs> and that's
0: only one reason I didn't like it. Ernie disappeared for a while. You'd go to meeting, somebody say, "Where's Ernie?" And I'd say, "Don't knock it, he's gone." that's no, right and one day he came back after two or three weeks I really don't recall how long it was but he came back and he walked through the young people's meeting and he looked around the room and we looked each other and I and I looked in there close and there was somebody home and I hadn't seen anybody there before he had changed and you could see it and you could see it as much as I could see you sitting right there you, you absolutely knew something would had and he had uh, when it's his turn to share, he shared with us that he'd gotten a beef with his wife and uh, ran away from home. And he ran down to a place called Lake Whitney, Texas, and got around some A's down there. There was an old-timer down there the named Bob White that we really looked up to. And uh, they stuck Ernie in a, in a room in this beat-up old lodge and told him to write inventory. A day or so later, when he came out and finished his, his inventory, Bob came by with his boat, his big boat he called it, and says, come on, Ernie, let's go fish." And Ernie loves to fish. I mean, he loves to. That's one of the two favorite things he likes to do. <laughs> they missed it. <laughs> Matt got it. Uh, and he uh, uh, got out in the middle of the lake. And Bob turned the boat off and he says, Ernie, why don't you tell me what you got in that image for? And Ernie can't swim. <laughs> so he took his first fifth step
1: but
0: I don't know what else he did after that but when he came back to the meeting the next Tuesday night he was different and he was visibly different so that night I went home myself and I picked up my big book and I opened it to the fifth chapter where it talks about inventory and I wrote my first inventory and I wrote most of it that night literally I wrote all night at sun up I, I shut it down and I, uh, I uh, hung onto that for a little bit, told a few people I had it, and a couple of weeks later, four of us are going to a convention in southeast Colorado. We got lost going down there and arrived a little bit late. There's two motel rooms left, so that means we got to take on a, a roommate. And I had high hopes that Mary was going to be my roommate, but uh, I got Ernie. And he knows I have this inventory thing. And he starts leaning on me to take a fifth step with somebody. Geez, I'm, I'm at a conference where some of the finest sobriety of the state are there, and many of them have taken fifth steps, and many of them have heard him before and really know what's going on. So I walked around that room and all that, and I really didn't see anybody there. I liked it a hell a lot better I did, Ernie. And so we went back to the room I took my first fifth step with. And the result of that is, is Ernie Still, one of the closest friends I've ever had. And, and uh, we were together just a little while ago. He still lives in Denver, but uh, a friend of ours had died down in Nashville, Tennessee. And he flew out to Indianapolis just so he and I could drive that five-hour drive together to go down, go down and, and uh, bury our friend. At any rate, I wrote the inventory. I took my fifth step and I looked at the steps again and I thought before I go on at this I need to tell the young people's group that I've been lying in that group just like I lied everywhere else and that was probably the hardest part of my fist then and I just went in there and shared with them a few things I could remember at the time that weren't true you see my point goes back is I needed to be a part of so bad I'd tell you anything and so I cleaned up what I could real- recall at the time and uh, got it taken care of and then I went out and did step six and seven and the hole in my belly with the wind blowing through it began to grow shut that night. And it really did. I've not hurt like I used to be since that point in time. I want you to know i pulled my punctures for years in AA and this is all I did in AA. For a long time. And I'm tapping people through the steps. Except step after step seven, I'm telling them how to do it because I don't know. Because I hadn't made the amendment. In 1977, I lost my mind and we moved to Indiana. <laughs>
1: They love it
0: when I say that, And we were lonesome there, and we didn't know anything, and they didn't do a damn thing right in the A there. That was all
1: different.
0: (laughs) The first meeting we went to was the uh, Bill Southport Group, down south of that old speaker meeting there in town. And uh, we went to it there in 1977, and I'll never forget it. Guy, he's dead now but his name is al roth and this is a real lovable man got up and he's tearing me and he says my name's al and i'm an alcoholic and Julian i hollered hi al and the whole damn group turn around and look at him.
1: <laughs>
0: you think that's funny you should have seen him when we grabbed hands to say the lord's prayer <laughs> holy cow we hung around for a while and I told my story in uh, Indianapolis for about three years, sharing what I've shared with you thus far, and talking about what happened to those guys that we went to the steps together with. And if you're the new guy in the town and they find out you can talk a little bit, man, you're hot. You're talking at every damn speaker meeting in town. <laughs> and, and this is going on. And there was this one redneck over there. He's still over there. His name's Larry. And, and he had the misfortune of trying to dodge me. And he got to about five speaker meetings in a row that I spoke at. And he came up to me this one time and he said, so, you're always talking about those steps. I said, yeah, they changed my life." He says, round here women work steps. And I said, listen to me, like they're doing real well. <laughs>
1: and
0: About two weeks later, he called me and said, I want to start one of them groups. I said, great, go ahead. And he said, will you come? And I said, sure. And so he just held at his house. He didn't worry about looking for a place. He just called 13 other guys, or 12 other guys, and uh, we met at his house. 13 of them made Don't know what happened to the other one. I just, the first one we lost, we lost one out of 14 in Denver, the first one, and uh, he went out and we found him froze to death. He had died an alcoholic death. We lost another one here, whatever it was, uh, seven, eight, nine years later in Indiana. Don't know what happened to him. He just went out and drank and it. The thirteen of them finished it, and they went out and they they would corral other people and take them through the twelve steps, and they were done. And they were smart enough to call it workshop. I hadn't figured that out. In fact, none of the monkeys in Denver figured that out. Nothing. And and uh, uh, that's what goes on. Uh, most of us feel that sponsorship. Yeah, it means being a friend the sponsorship primarily means getting you through the 12 steps quickly the big book is laced with words like immediately at once, right now do they think that means us Ben came to that workshop there in Indianapolis and he'd had just a whole room full of people at the Carvel Club telling him, well I wouldn't take steps right now you need to wait until you're ready (laughs) Ben was ready, ready at about 13 days and he came through there and he went through the 12 steps with us and he's still sober and he's teaching people how to take steps now in san francisco and i guess he's what 15 years sober now. So. <clears throat> doing fine and then what's just as fun is go get the old geezer who's been around a for a long time like me and has never done the work got one we had one finished uh, been in a round a for 22 years he's 18 years sober and he came to us uh two Years ago, he'd been 16 then, and said he'd never read the big book and he'd the, never taken the 12th step. He was active in his church and he didn't know why he was there. He said, I don't think I'm miserable, but I, I, I think I'll do this. And we took him through the steps. And this was two years ago. He showed up at my home group last Tuesday night and he's still on fire. I said, Look out, he's gonna have you, he's gonna have your face in the big book right now if you even. Smell like you haven't taken a step. I mean, he's on right, he's just great. And, and so, that, and, and that's kind of being coming attractive to, to us. We've had two guys show up in the last three weeks, maybe four weeks, coming to our group and saying, The one of them was, was uh, not quite 10 years sober. He says, I'm miserable, I'm blow my brains out. And somebody said, This was a real good group, and you guys have helped me. But he's going through the steps of Jim right now. And he came last night, and he's looking better already had another one come in and do that, and he ran. He's not willing to do the, the things that we do. I hope he makes it. Hope I do. Anyway, I was pulling my punch in case you have not picked that up. I was stopping it. Step seven. You picked it up, huh? Yeah. <laughs> You're a lot of help. I, ten years ago, about, yeah, I'm in real trouble I'm in serious trouble. My family, my marriage is in trouble. I can't make a living. I'm in bad, bad shape. And so I called a man in Chicago that's a long time in AA who I've always respected a great deal. And I called him and I said, uh, Paul, this is Gary Brown. I said, do you suppose there's anything to this? He said, could I be a 45 year old alcoholic grandfather (laughs) suffering from middle age crazy? Male menopause. And he says, Well, maybe. He says, Well, why don't you start over in the step? write a whole new inventory, come up here and take some fifth steps and make some amends, and you're going to feel better. So I said, Okay. And I wrote an inventory again. And I, uh, I didn't cover any old ground. I guarantee I am one of those that can generate new material for inventory.
1: <laughs>
0: Thank God we can keep writing inventories. <laughs> we don't have to quit. I did review my sexual behavior over the years, and I did review some what I thought was old ground there. If it was, it uh, hadn't <laughs> clicked. And I called him, I told him I was done, and he says, fine, be up here Friday night by four o'clock. He gave me the name of a motel on Ogden Avenue in Chicago bring your inventory, and I did, and I showed up there, and I had just enough time to get the, in the room and go get a cup of coffee, and there's a knock on the door, and there's a complete stranger standing there, and he says, my name's Dennis O'Brien, I'm 29 years sober, and I'm here to swap fist steps with you. He said, I'll go first so you know what we're doing, and this monkey sits down, opens up a three-ring binder, and starts reading inventory.
1: It
0: sounded a lot like
1: mine couple of
0: different names
1: there
0: <laughs> activities seem to be very similar and so he gets done and to keep in mind that we're right we're talking about serious inventory covering our entire lives So we're two men have been writing inventories for a long long time you can get rid of a great deal of drama there and you can get down to the, the mistakes the words a little calm as we review these things and look for our own mistakes or were we selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightening? If you will, those are the defects of the
1: shortcomings.
0: And uh, we got through them. We shared, we compared notes. I'd miss some things, and he'd miss some things, and he left. And I went and got another cup of coffee, and there's a knock on the door. The guy says, I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. I'm 20 years sober. I'm here to swap fist steps with you. I'll go first, so you know what to do. By noon Sunday, I'd done that nine
1: times.
0: (laughs) Paul, at that time, was thirty-seven years
1: old,
0: and I guess the least sobriety I did it with was a fellow two or three years (laughs)
1: old.
0: And then we met at noon for lunch that Sunday, and we're sitting there, and they they said, "Gary, let's help you get your meds. Let's go (laughs) on." They had remarkable memories. Can't believe they heard that stuff. Remember that? Just listened to it once.
1: <laughs>
0: I had to, I had to write a separate amends list. Everything I had in my inventory certainly be, needed to be treated as amends. But I had things that weren't on that inventory that, that were old amends that went back many, many, many years. We owed thousands and thousands of dollars that we weren't being billed for. That went long way before we got sold, and we didn't owe it for anything. I mean, there weren't new houses, cars, and furniture sitting there. We just owed it, and. Uh, uh there's a lot of those people on the list in and out of AA. i'd borrowed enough money from people in AA. I was afraid to go to some meeting. god i didn't want to run into deck with somebody didn't want to do it i believe that could get a guy drunk amazed it didn't make it. anyway we went home i went home i sat down with julie and we discussed all this i'd say julie and i are lifelong buddies she considered that a lot of this was her part as much as mine. And we made arrangements to start taking care of these men. And real quickly, we called a couple of them right then. I'll just share a couple of them. We called a lot of them to start. We called a man named John and Laramie who, who uh, had hired me to manage his clothing store uh, while I was going to college there. And three years and three months after I started college there, I left Laramie, the best-dressed graduating senior to ever leave Laramie, and I'd stolen down every one of those pieces of clothing really every one and keep in mind I'm sober and I'm in AA when I'm doing at any rate I called John and I said hey John this is Gary Brown You remember me he said oh yeah he said you used to work for me did you still go to those meetings and I said yeah that's why I'm calling and he said uh I I, I told him why I was there and why I was calling and told him I felt like I owed him whatever kind of money was we came to at that point in time for all the things I'd stolen from him and wanted to make amends for that and and to pay him back and in our group we shut up after you say you want to make amends because they may have something they need to say and we don't defend ourselves when they say it we don't do that and then we ask them well what can we do to set it straight yeah I owe you the money but what else do I need to do to set it straight in this case John just kind of wanted the money back so we made arrangements for me to send him 50 bucks a month I was real good for the first two, three, four months, wherever it was. Then I missed a commission check, and and he didn't get paid, and he called me and done me. And then he said in the same sentence, he says, no, he says, I love what you're doing, and it's the right thing to do. he says, I got lots of money. I don't need your money. And he forgave me. That same night, we called Julie's folks. We'd taken money from them under all sorts of pretences, drunk and sober, and had every intention of paying them back. Even wrote, signed notes that we were going to repay the money course we never did we didn't do that so anyway we called this night and Julie's dad answered the phone and his name was was Ellis and Ellis uh, answered the phone and I identified myself and I said Ellis I'm calling to uh, make some amends to you but I want you to know that all I don't know how to do that over the phone but I want you to know I'm incredibly grateful to you and I want to thank you for the kindness and the love you show me after all those years I know I was driving you crazy the way I was treating your daughter and your granddaughter I knew it was just all. Awesome. And you, you you were nothing but love and patience during all that time, and, uh, uh, and I love you. And he said, oh shit, and he handed the phone off to Grandma.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so
0: uh, I go through the same thing with her, and then I finally get down to why I'm calling for sure, and I said, do you have any idea how much money you gave us over the years? She says, right down to the last penny. <laughs> So we made amends to start paying that money. <coughs> Two days later, Julie's dad fell over with a heart attack. He was out trying out his new snowblower and uh, never regained consciousness. I and mean, if God got me in there just in the nick of time, wouldn't that have been a shame we'd have missed that? Uh, a few years later, five years later, being in fact, we're looking at this situation. We're not getting anywhere. I'm not making enough money. I mean, it's like. It's like those of us putting a dollar in a basket at the A meeting, like I think about. Ain't near enough to pay our own way, but that's what we're doing. And I didn't mean to get, this is a service conference. uh, That's one, (laughs) that's one sermon I don't get into
1: often.
0: Maybe we should. It's funny how we tighten up as we sober up, isn't it? Anyway, uh, where the hell was I? We're looking at our our situation, we're not getting anywhere. And I told you this is going to go on the rest of our lives. I don't see us getting done with it. And she thought for a minute and she says, I have an idea. We've lived in this house for quite a while now and we've gained a lot of equity in it. Why don't we see if we couldn't sell this house and if there's not enough equity in there to pay off all these old amends plus our current debt, maybe there's enough we can do that and buy a used mobile home or something like that. And I said, yeah, sure. I was hoping she wasn't serious. I mean, that's heavy stuff, think about it. The next night I come home from work, and by then I know she's serious. And so I I, uh, I called Paul, I told Joe, let's call Paul and see what he says. About it. So I called up there and, and uh, I explained to him, I said, we're, we're, we're thinking about uh, selling the house, taking the equity, paying off all those amends, and maybe buying a trailer house. He said, you've been real quick to Tell me I'm loco over the years. Uh, what's this sound like to you? He says, in the 20-some years I've known you, that's the sanest thing i ever heard you say. He said, was it your idea? And I said, no, it was Julie's, and he said he thought so. I don't know how he knew. So anyway, we did that. Take a long story short, three or four months later, the house sold. Sold on Julie's birthday, 28th of February.
1: Nineteen
0: odd. Oh. Uh, <laughs> she's shaking her head, she knew where I was going. <laughs> she says we think too much alike after all. These At any rate, the house sold on the twenty eighth of February, we had the greatest day of our lives. I mean, we really did. We got to call all those people and wrap up all those amends. Call John and Lear uh, and all I said to him is, John, I'm in shape to pay the money I owe you. What's your address? And he gave me the address. He forgot he forgave me.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'll tell you, we, uh, we made arrange to pay him all back. And let me tell you about one more. And I'll shut down before the play. Uh, uh, There's a man in AA who lives up in the northern states. Is a circuit speaker and does an awful lot of it. And he and I became friends years and years ago. We just really loved each other. We don't get to see each other often. We're generally, going in two different circles. We see each other every three or four years, at But he called us one day a number of years ago, and he said, "Hey Gary, he says I'm going to be talking down in Virginia or someplace." And he said, "Got some extra time. I thought I'd fly Indianapolis a day early and spend Thursday night with you and Julie, and then fly on down to my meeting the next day." He said, "I think I'd love that. God, Bob, I can't think I'd like it better." So as I stated, he shows up the next day, and I meet him up at the airport. We stopped and got a cup of coffee, and he looks me in the eye. He says, you look terrible. That's a paraphrase. And and he he said says, you look awful. What's going on in your life? And so I had to tell him, then. I says, well, I've been using up money I've earned for other things, and I'm way behind on the house payments, and they're going to foreclose on the house tomorrow. I said, that's bad enough, but Julie doesn't know that. She doesn't have a clue. And I'm terrified for her. And I've not told anybody. I hadn't told my closest friends in Indianapolis. and I hadn't told anybody, you know. And so, anyway, I just felt so much better telling somebody. So we're driving from the airport to the house across town. And Bob says, uh, where's your bank? I said, what bank? He said, the one that has a note on your house. And I says, right downtown here, why? He says, let's go over and talk to them. Maybe we can talk. I said, Bob, they're all done talking. They're not interested in any talk. You, see, you never know. Let's go. And so we drove downtown, and they were right down there in Washington, Pennsylvania, right downtown. And the busiest part of town, would you know, there's a parking place? And we're walking across the street to go into that bank. Any of you guys ever have to go in to see the principal with your dad? Roger did, I can see. Yeah. And that's how I felt we went in there and sat down and, and here's the negotiation bob says How, what's it going to take to bring gary up to date and the guy looked it up and he's carrying it in traverse checks and cash and he paid him for it and so we're walking out of there and you think i felt funny going in you should have been in my skin going out i said shit bob i got to pay that back and he said that's your problem <laughs> At any rate, all these years later, and uh, I called Bob and said, Give me your address, I'll send you that money again. And he laughed. I said, What's so damn funny? He said, Gary, when, when, when we gave you that money all those years ago, he says, I was making money faster than I could spend it. I really was. He says, I had a business that generated so much cash, it was just unbelievable now they've changed the tax laws and limited partnerships are no longer what they used to be and he says I'm struggling just to keep my business together and he says I'm on a budget I'm on allowance for the first time in my sober life and he says I'm really struggling he says and when we were making all that money Linda and I used to our tithe was to find people who really needed help such as you and I help people all across this country I we did all across this country just doing that because we had. now I'm in deep trouble financially and you know, he says, I'm not calling anybody, I'm not telling anybody, all I'm doing is praying my butt off and checks are coming in. He says, they're just coming in. So we get to be a part of this deal that comes back around, you know, and then goes around again. Let's we'll see all of that. Important thing about all that, the most important thing is we're free. We don't have to dodge anybody anymore, in or outside A. We can go back to Cheyenne and we can walk down the streets and we don't have to duck into any doorways or down any alleys. I've had friends in my home group. My home group is called the Dignitary Sympathy Group.
1: No dignitaries there. Ain't no sympathy there.
0: The guys in the group tell Julian and I that they've seen the change in us since then, and I believe them. I believe maybe somebody's home that hasn't been there before. So I guess my message I'd like to have about the AA members that hear me is two things. And it doesn't matter whether you're a new guy and a gal in this room that are just starting out and are sitting there terrified, I don't expect you to remember a damn thing I said except that you don't ever have to hurt like you used to hurt. Because I haven't since the time I finished those first seven steps that first time. As you know, I've been crazy and stupid, but I haven't hurt like I used to. Now, the second message I'd like to leave with you is if you've been around a while and wondered why you can't get your gear together, that's a paraphrasing. Why don't you try this? Why don't you get your big book and open it up to the first page and go through that book line by line. And if one line tells you to do something, do it. And if it asks you a question, answer it. And I promise you, you'll change your life when it's over.
1: Thank you for having me.